0: It's in the history of the ordinary human being that you find the great messages, the great insights into universal human nature.
1: I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps. We sell e-books and audio books, and we create technology and experiences that help people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk to authors about their books as well as the books that shaped them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Cobone Conversation. My guest today is Lyndon McIntyre. He is a novelist who in 2009 won Canada's prestigious Scotia Giller Prize for his second novel, The Bishop's Man. He's published several more novels since then, exploring themes of guilt, redemption, violence, and shame set against and often embedded in Eastern Canadian backdrops. But it's his new non-fiction book that we're talking about today, The Wake, The Deadly Legacy of a Newfoundland Tsunami, is a sweeping story about a maritime community wounded by natural disasters, exploited by the greed of outsiders, and neglected by their government. It's a page-turner filled with unforgettable characters, and yet the most surprising thing about it may be that somehow it's a story most Canadians have never heard, or if they have, have forgotten. The audiobook has just been released, narrated, of course, by its author, who, I should add, also happens to be one of Canada's most respected and celebrated broadcast journalists. Lyndon McIntyre, welcome to Kobo.
0: Great to be here. It's a strange world, strange uh, medium, but here we are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Wake centers on one small town, St. Lawrence, on the south shore of Newfoundland. And this is a town that you have a personal connection to. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I
0: grew up hearing a lot about St. Lawrence, Newfoundland, uh, because um, it was the first place my parents lived. My mother and father was the first place they started a family, of which I was the first member. And my father was an itinerant hard rock miner, and uh, in the early, early part of World War II, uh, he was a miner in northern Quebec, and he was recruited along with a few other Cape Bretoners. There's a strong tradition of hard rock mining in, Cape in addition to the coal mining. They were recruited to go to Newfoundland by the Department of Munitions and wartime stuff, and uh, their job was to drive tunnels for storage of munitions uh, on the south side of St. John's Harbour. While they were there and they were finishing up that job, they heard that there was work in this place called St. Lawrence down on the south coast of the Buren Peninsula. It was a mine uh, that was producing a strategic material called fluorospar, which has all sorts of uh, strategic purposes. It's uh, aluminum, ceramics, uh, steel, and uh, as, as we only found out while I was working on this book, the atomic bomb. Anyway, these young guys went down there to work in, in the in the mine, and my father I uh, was accustomed to frontier mining camps, pretty rough place to live. Here he was in a in a in a town uh, with it with had been there for hundreds of years. It had schools. It had it had uh, churches. It had people that he liked. So he decided, okay, if I'm ever going to start a family, this is a good place. He ran back to Cape Breton, fetched my mother. They got married and came over, and I was born there. So I grew up. I mean, it was a very happy part of their lives. Uh, they had great friends there. It was, a, it, was, it was absolutely no sense of the tragedy behind uh, my father's arrival there or the tragedy, of course, that was looming in the future. This was a, a sort of a, a serene time for them where he worked hard in very difficult circumstances. My mother was basically having a couple of kids. And I heard a lot about these two years when I was growing up. And one of the interesting aspects of the stories I heard was they, they, were, they were always about women, my mother's friends. And well, I thought, well, my, surely my father had friends. Well, the only one I ever heard of was my godfather. I got a name by the name of Alonzo Walsh, whose sister was my godmother. But we would hear a lot more about my, my godmother, Loretta, than we would about my godfather, her
1: brother. Was that just due to the taciturn nature of the men of town or who the storyteller was in your family?
0: Well, that was what I would presume, that the women were more uh, engaged, more interesting. Uh, the social life that the women sort of focused on was, was, was something that was more memorable, whereas the men got, folk, it was all underground mining. It was rough and tumble. Uh, it was hardship. It was much later on that I, I discovered and this is where, where the start of the book kind of came from, that the reason they weren't talking too much about men friends is, because most of the men friends were all dead. And most of the men friends were all dead because they, uh, they were afflicted with industrial diseases, tuberculosis, uh, silicosis, cancers of various kinds. And by the early 60s, uh, it was proven, after a lot of foot dragging and the rest of it, that these diseases were absolutely uh, attributable to conditions in the workplace and quite coincidentally in 1969 my father died at the age of 50 now this wasn't the only mine he worked in he worked he worked there several times he was back and forth there a lot as i later later discovered but he worked in, in mines like this all over the country very primitive mining operations and uh, when i realized that what had happened there, it, 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 the penny really dropped for me. I was on a television shoot down in that part of the, the mid-80s. And I, and I actually went to see my godmother, who was still alive. And I asked her, I said, uh, whatever happened to my godfather? He's not around anymore, is he? Oh, my dear, no, she said. Poor Alonzo, he and his two brothers, Fred and Jack, they're over in the cemetery. They've been there a very long time. And when I went over to the cemetery to see my godfather's grave, I, I was astonished. Mm-hmm. First of all, by the fact that that my godfather died within months of my father, and and one man that they used to talk about a lot of fellow that by the name of Renny Slaney, who was a, a boss, a, an underground captain, supervisor type, he had died around The, the three of these men who had worked in this mine, they all died within months of one another at at early ages. I mean, relatively, and I said, "Wow, this is." A, I mean, this, I'd heard traces of this story in the past. Every so often, there would be a a crisis of some kind that would produce national uh, news coverage and then it would disappear again. I hadn't heard anything about this for quite some time. And uh, just to sort of cut to the end of my long-winded answer, uh, an editor or a publisher that I knew at HarperCollins asked if I was ever interested in writing a book because I had made flippant comment to him once. He says, how do you end up being born in Newfoundland when your roots are all deep in Cape Breton? And I said, oh, I was the product of a tsunami. And he said, a oh, what? And I said, yeah, a tsunami. And he said, well, you know, what's the connection? I said, well, there was a tsunami in 1929. It caused a huge economic crisis in that part of Newfoundland. It, it created a huge amount of poverty. Uh, it was during the Depression. Uh, it was remote and had very little communication with the rest of the world. A, uh, an entrepreneur from the United States barges in and says, I can save you all. I'm, I'm going to start up a mine. And so everybody wrapped their arms around this prospect. They worked for nothing for a long time. They worked in absolutely appalling work conditions for a very long time, and the mine came to be. And my father, being a miner, ended up working there and ended up bringing his bride there and ended up having me there. That's why I attribute my presence in this world to a tsunami. Because if it wasn't for the tsunami, there probably wouldn't been a mine like that in that place.
1: So each clause in that explanation is a thread that I'm going to pull over the course of the next few minutes.
0: <laughs> so Maybe we'll be here on the weekend, but anyway, <laughs> pull away.
1: At the very beginning of the book, you describe a night in, in 1929, the tsunami that you mentioned. That night really could have been a whole book in itself. Can you tell us what happened on November 18th, right before the Depression started.
0: About a couple of hundred miles. I'm I'm a little imprecise now on the, you know, precise on numbers, but anyway, a couple of hundred miles off the south tip of Newfoundland, there was an earthquake under the sea, about like 20 kilometers straight down under the in, the, in the, in the crust of the earth, there was a two plates shifted. And it was a fairly significant earthquake, it was 7.2 on the scale of magnitude, but where the, where the real consequences originated was the creation of a landslide, a huge landslide on the uh, southern tip of the continental shelf, southern edge of the continental shelf. This massive buildup of silt and gravel and crap, you know, from for thousands of years had been sitting there. It, it, it was the equivalent of a, of a mountain range of mud on the uh, southern edge of the uh, continental shelf. And all of a sudden, this wiggle caused it to be, to slide down this long slope, and it picked up speed as it went, and it it gathered up all kinds of water, turned into a mush, and it traveled for 13 hours, basically. The initial uh, motion of it created what Newfoundlanders called for many years a tidal wave, a, a tsunami. Now, the tsunami was just a sort of a displacement of water and a surge of water, and it started to move at a very rapid speed, Towards land. It was in you don't notice these things coming because it's it they they have the same character as a wave. It's a kind of a swell. Boats rode over this tsunami, this building tsunami, and they just noticed a bit of a rocking. As it approaches the coastline and and, and the and the sea bottom slopes upward, it drags on the bottom and it causes itself, it, it it rises on the top and it turns into this massive wave. When it hit the south coast of Newfoundland, it was about 30 feet high in some places. It ranged between about 12 and, and 30 some feet as it, as it washed up onto the shore. Now, it landed in, in a series of small communities, about 40 communities, where people who had been fisher folk forever lived. And they were so comfortable with the sea. They were almost sea creatures. They built their homes right on the shore. Uh, they didn't have much transportation so when they went to work on the sea which they always did all the time for hundreds of years they just wanted to walk out the door climb in the boat and roll off so all these little houses were in these little bays and communities along the coast and they were totally exposed to this wave and the wave crashed ashore and after a couple of hours after the earthquake at a time when people were sort of going from house to house they were still talking about this earthquake uh, it was a beautiful night. It was a moonlit night. It was no wind. People were roaming around. Probably, if it had been a stormy night, people would be stuck in their houses and the, the death toll would have been massive. As it turned out, uh, 27 people died because they were caught mostly older people and children and moms who were caught at home or the dads were sort of out off working someplace else or they were off visiting playing cards or sort of analyzing the causes of that phenomenon earlier in the day. And the earthquake, it tore their houses apart, it tore their workplace apart, it tore their boats apart, it tore their fish traps and nets apart. It destroyed the economic infrastructure. And if that wasn't bad enough, for some peculiar reason that nobody's able to particularly attribute to the tsunami, the fish all disappeared from the sea for a few years. So these were people that even if even if the government was able to give them boats and fishing gear again there were no fish and there was nothing and uh, around this time around the around the time of the tsunami there was a, a newfoundlander he had acquired uh, mineral rights for that coast nobody knew anything about this stuff but there was a huge deposit of florist bar down there and uh, Floris bar as everybody was uh, sort of speculating was the future of the world i mean Future of the world was steel and aluminum and ceramics and chemicals. And it's it's essential to the production of all those things. So the Newfoundlander had great plans, businessman from St. John's. And he was sitting around one evening. I don't know how they encountered one another, but there was a young fellow from New York City there. He was an accountant. And he was he was in Newfoundland on some kind of a business assignment. And he ends up shooting the breeze with this Newfoundlander and hearing all about his great scheme. And he they, he gives him his card. He goes back to New York, about a year later, the Newfoundlanders' dreams are in shatters because of the depression and the rest of it. This guy, he works on Wall Street. He's, a, you know, he's only young, he's 27, 28 years old, but he's got connections. And he ends up buying these mineral rights for a pittance. And then he begins to explore, well, what, will I, what can I do with this? There's a the depression on, but these are important, uh, this mineralization is important. So he, he begins to raise some money, but he can't raise much.
1: And the first part of the story, you know, plays out against the backdrop of the Newfoundland financial crisis, you know, as well as the Great Depression.
0: The whole country, it was a country at the time. It was going broke. It was like in a complete budgetary crash.
1: And why were things so dire then? What was happening in the Newfoundland economy that was particularly bad at a time when economies were bad everywhere?
0: Well, first of all, you know, the most, the most generous uh, analysis is that they were totally dependent on the fishery. And the competition in the fishery between Newfoundland, Iceland, Norway, Spain, Portugal, the competition was vicious. And the Newfoundlanders were coming out second best because they weren't highly, you know, they weren't very well organized. They weren't very technically sophisticated. The whole social structure, the place, uh, fishery was run by barons, you know, very wealthy people in the city and the people out in the outports, the they really sort of tagged along and got the crumbs. So the country was far too dependent on, on one uh, on one staple. And uh, the world economy was starting to fall apart. There had been some serious mismanagement. There was massive debt in Newfoundland as a result of, of their participation in World War I. The famous Newfoundland regiment, we hear all about the, the heroism and tragedy. The tragedy we don't particularly hear much about is the fact that this regiment Ran the province into very serious financial debt, including obligations to the people who actually survived the war. So the, the war left them very vulnerable economically. And then there was a lot of uh, mismanagement. Uh, Newfoundland politics were crazy at the time. Uh, there was corruption. Uh, there was a whole series of factors that all sort of came together in around 1930, 31, and resulted in 1932 and the loss of democracy, basically. Uh, The British government had a close relationship with this former colony and uh, decided, you know, the only way we can help you anymore is to take over. And so they suspended all political activity in Newfoundland. They appointed a uh, seven-person commission to essentially run all the civic functions in Newfoundland. And uh, the place (laughs) was stayed like that until 1949 when it became a province of Canada.
1: And at this particular point, where, as you say, we have a fishery in trouble, we have a government that's either collapsing or has effectively handed over authority back to the British, we have people that are on the verge of starvation throughout the island. And if you didn't have a job in 1929, you could starve to death or very nearly. Your depiction of what you got when you were on the dole in 1929 is pretty scant. (laughs)
0: To put $1, $1. 80 a $1.80 a month for, you know, uh, for a person to live on. And of course, it was considered, along with, with the accumulated debt of the province, this, this dole was considered to be the biggest drain on the treasury. So there was a constant and there was an unending effort to cut that back. And it was hugely controversial. And it ended up in a massive uprising that I'm surprised it was a, it was a riot practically sacked the city of St. John's one day. and it was, That was sort of the, 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 the big wake-up for the UK government. we got to, we got to intervene in this. Our first thing you know, you're going to have a member of the British Commonwealth default on his financial obligations, go bankrupt. And Newfoundland isn't the only place with financial problems in the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, Australia, Britain had huge problems. And this could result in a, in a chain reaction in which countries all over the British Commonwealth were, were falling apart financially. And so uh, London decided, we, let, let's get, get our hands on this one and see if we can not straighten this up before, before these Newfoundlanders make a complete mess of it. And they did.
1: And so in this precarious moment arrives Walter Siebert, the accountant from New York, right at the time when Dominion authorities are looking for some way to revitalize this economy. So can you describe him for me? What kind of a man was he?
0: Well, you know, uh, well, Walter was, and, and it's, this is all from the memories of people and from what was written about him. He was a slick, well-dressed, good-looking, personable young guy who, on top of all his other gifts, he was a wicked piano player, apparently. And he showed up in, in St. Lawrence to see his property. And he, was, he moved in with one of the, the pharaohs, which was sort of one of the leading families in the place, merchants and you know, highly sophisticated people. And he moved in with them. And they were a little skeptical about this slick guy from New York promising the moon, but he charmed the hell out of them. And he was around there. They put him up in his little party uh, in their house for a long time. and They had a great time. And by the time he left, Farrell said, "Look, we'll do what we can do to sort of get you off, get you on your feet." So what the Farrells uh, had to do was essentially persuade local people to give this guy the benefit of the doubt to become participants in cooperative venture, uh, in which they would make in huge sacrifices at the beginning, but they would reap huge rewards when the thing got running.
1: And cooperative venture being. A euphemism, and this is the part that I find most heart-wrenching, but also quite relatable, is that they would start excavating the mine for free
0: with picks and shovels and wheelbarrows. These men who had never been, never done anything except either fish or or cut down trees, and they did. It was mostly fishing. They were mostly fishermen. They they knew nothing about mine. They started the the mineral was was fairly close to the surface initially. You could see it sticking out of the soil basically so they they did they found a, a, a really rich uh, part of the resource and they started digging it and they dug and they dug and the, and the objective was to produce i think it was three thousand tons of this stuff uh, and and there was a, a steel mill in cape breton that would buy it and would pay for it if it if it passed muster in their labs so these guys, without even knowing that, that the company was going to get paid or they were going to get paid, they dug this stuff up and they shipped it to Cape Breton. And lo and behold, uh, the steel mill in Cape Breton bought it and eventually paid Walter for the stuff. Walter, by this time, had a team of people working for quite a long time without any wages. Uh, but the Farrells, who owned uh, the, most, uh, the biggest store in the place, had agreed to keep people food on their tables just keep them alive until they had the money to pay for what they were using and Farrell suddenly realized Walter was in no rush to pay him and of course he was in no position to pay to you know to uh, the miners were the, were the last people on the totem pole so this was a, a kind of a rocky start to this cooperative venture and uh, and and it just it went downhill from there by now uh, the, the working people have invested so much into it uh, that they just had to keep going and uh, as I said before they were they were not miners they knew nothing about mining they did not know when when this thing got down underground after the the easy stuff they got down underground working in narrow tunnels working in the dark using kerosene lanterns and candles for light no protective clothing at all using basically it was a very wet mine so they were using the slickers that they had used as, as fishermen to stay dry and it wasn't really helping much. They, no, nothing like a hard hat or safety boots. None of this stuff. They, they didn't even know this stuff existed. They were just down there breaking their backs, picking and shoveling and, and using antiquated, outdated uh, equipment that that Walter brought in, jackhammers and drills. What they didn't really understand was that uh, the the under the most perilous underground condition that they were dealing in was was something that for them was just huge discomfort. But it was dust. This uh, outmoded equipment that he was using generated unbelievable amounts of dust, and the miners were trying to not breathe it in. But you know they would they would put cheesecloths over their faces, and but you know the cheesecloth would get damp. Uh, it would plug up with dust, and they couldn't breathe. They'd have to take it off. And uh, but they feel well, like my God, miners everywhere work like this, but they didn't really. And uh, trudging around underground, wheeling stuff around in wheelbarrows, cranking it up to the surface, and, and primitive—a log basically with a rope wrapped around it. And this is how the this is how the first few years of that place survived uh, by the sweat and hard work of these miners who described. Walking in the wintertime, they'd walk home from from work. They'd be so wet that by the time they got home, they would literally, their clothing would be frozen hard. It would be like robots, metal robot bots arriving at at home at night. And things were were getting completely out of hand. Walter was cavalier, about when he paid, the checks bounced. He missed paydays regularly. People were getting paid a fraction of what other industrial workers were making in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was nothing they could do about it. Uh, They eventually formed a union. The union was pretty easy going to start, then it got a bit more militant, and then World War II started. Huge demand for this stuff. Walter got big contracts with the American government. Suddenly the Americans were building military bases in Newfoundland, everything was booming in Newfoundland, and suddenly the miners had options, and they basically said to Walter, you begin to pay us or we're going to go and work for the Americans someplace and
1: whatever. And that's one of the things that I, I found so interesting about this story is that It begins as a story about a natural disaster, but then it almost becomes like a -a ship-in-a-bottle history of labor in 20th century North America. You start with unbridled capitalism, then you get organized labor, and then you get into some of the nuts and bolts of industrial health and safety, and then tragedy that follows from that. The history of mining in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia has a steady toll of mining fatalities. You know, we think of Spring Hill, we think of Glace Bay and West Ray, and Newfoundland certainly has the mines of Bell Island. But this turned into a mining disaster in slow motion. Exactly. <laughs> and is that one of the reasons why it hasn't stuck in people's memory the same way?
0: That's one of the reasons. I mean, just the the remoteness of the place was another reason. Uh, The fact that the people weren't making a fuss about this, except locally when they decided to put the tools down and and take on the bus. But it it remained a kind of a community controversy. And this this was the way it unfolded right up into the late 40s. And uh, a young English doctor showed up. This was another aspect of it. There There were no doctors there. There were no nurses there. There was no hospital there. So, when people got sick, uh, they went off someplace to die or, in some cases, get better. But it it was almost like one on one. I mean, it was just, the other thing was that there was a massive epidemic of tuberculosis in Newfoundland. So, that when people showed up with uh, respiratory diseases, oh, that's the TB. You got the TB. Well, by the late 40s, they started to notice that when minors got TB, they didn't recover. I mean, TB, people do recover from it with the proper treatment. And so people were going off to the TB hospital in St. John's. They were being treated there for maybe a year or whatever, but they would come home fairly healthy. Minors went off and they'd be sent home after a certain amount of treatment to die. So there was something peculiar about this. What was it? Young English doctor shows up and he says, this looks to me like something I'm familiar with from England. It looks like silicosis, you know, which is a minor's disease. It affects the lungs. It has a lot of a lot of the same characteristics as tuberculosis. He says, uh, you know, and he kept, he, he started agitating to get some tests done. But he wasn't there long enough to really do much, except that while he was there, he did something extremely unusual. And it's it's part of the book that I had trouble believing myself as I researched, wrote it. But it's absolutely factual. He conducted a completely illegal autopsy on a Newfoundland minor who died at the age of 42, I think he was. And during the wake, this doctor went into the wake house, consulted with the widow and a couple of other locals and said, OK, we're going to close off the wake room for a little while. And he went into the wake room and he left. He stationed uh, one of the local fellows at the door. Nobody's allowed in. He took another one in to witness and uh, and he opened up the corpse. He, he took out tissue samples from the lungs and sewed him back up again and sent the tissue samples off someplace uh, in the mainland. And the results came back that the minor died of silicosis up until that point. The company had been dismissing all this stuff. The, uh, the government of Newfoundland had been dismissing all this. The, the commission of government later the province, oh, no, no, that's just tuberculosis. And the doctor, and then they pointed out that the, that the individual had tuberculosis, but they couldn't say whether he got the tuberculosis because of the silicosis or vice versa. And the doctor came up with a theory that these miners were suffering with some kind of a hybrid disease that was silicosis and tuberculosis combined, and there was no cure for it. Unfortunately, it took years of agitation before anybody recognized that this was true. And, and by the time there was an acknowledgement uh, officially, there was another specter hanging over the town, and that was cancer.
1: And this was the slow uncovering of the fatal nature of radon gas.
0: Yes. And uh, everybody knew that, people generally knew that uranium miners who uh, were exposed to radon gas all the time. Uh, get cancer. And there are, even back then, there were, there were steps taken to, to limit the exposure. But in St. John, in, in St. Lawrence, there's no reason for there to be radon gas in the mine. It must be something else. Because, there's you know, the forest fire is not radioactive. And they dithered with this, and they argued about it, and they had meetings about it. And until eventually, after years, it was it was proven that, yeah, there is radon gas in the mine. Now, where the hell is it coming from? And of course one of the things I discovered when I was doing my research there, there was that there was a there was a geological uh, paper pres- presented way back in the 40s pointing out that there was massive reserves of uranium down below St. Lawrence Newfoundland along with everything else. And what they eventually realized was that it was a very wet mine. It, it, it rains a lot there. There were a lot of lakes and rivers, and the water was sort of filtering down through the rock and through the uranium, and it was coming out in the mine and generating radon gas. And by the time they came to this conclusion, there were hundreds of miners doomed. There were dozens already dead, and there were hundreds dying. There was nothing could be done. The irony is that when they finally acknowledged that there was radon gas in the mine and that it, Improved ventilation would, would solve the problem. It took them about a month to improve the ventilation in the mines and reduce the uh, radiation gases down to uh, permissible levels. By then, it was a, it was a disaster that was going to continue to unfold in slow motion for decades, and uh, it decimated and generations of men in that town.
1: And that's how you can frame this book as you know, something that begins with a disaster that kills 29 and ends up you know really being hundreds of fatalities over time. The book starts as a dialogue with your father. Yeah. And he threads throughout this. What made you want to weave that storyline of of you and your dad through a story that begins in 1929 and and ends sort of in the 80s?
0: Well, because of um, his experience there and because of my family's experience there and because of the sort of the legacy that I was exposed to growing up. I felt a strong personal connection to the place, but I didn't. I didn't want to write a memoir because I only I lived there for a few years as an infant, as a, you know, a toddler. But I really can't say, hey, you know, this is my hometown and blah blah blah. I like, but <laughs> this is a town that that had a massive inf- impact on on my family and on my own personal life, and I have to somehow express a a, a personal investment in this story without it being intrusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided at a certain point, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring my father back from the grave. I'm going to bring some of his friends back from the grave, and we're going to have a conversation. We're going to have a series of conversations.
1: Which is ironic, because your father was not the most talkative man, as far as I could tell from the book.
0: <laughs> no, uh, he definitely was not. He, he was of that generation and that culture that says, look, we're lucky to have a job. Uh, every job has a downside. Every, everything we do is dangerous, and we are all gifted with common sense, and we are, it's, it's incumbent on us to use our common sense uh, and whatever uh, self-preserving uh, skills we have to look after ourselves. Don't expect the boss to do it. Don't expect the government to do it. We'll do it for ourselves. So that was his attitude. Uh, even, and I recall when, when I was researching this, I came across a trove of documents in my own home where I grew up, and in the, in the box of stuff, I found a couple of letters he had written to me, ironically, in 1961, which was when the radiation was being proven, discovered. He happened to be working there then. And he wrote me two letters. Uh, I was in university at the time. He wrote me two letters. And in one of them, he mentions, yeah, I'm back in St. Lawrence. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to be back. It's amazing. All my old friends are dead and gone. Really? Yeah. You know, well, I guess you know you're you're 40 years old for Christ's sake. You know what do you expect here, Franchot? You get to be that age, you start losing your friends. <laughs> and in the other letter, he says, "Yeah, the work is hard. They're getting well paid. All this talk about radiation really gets to you after a while." He said, His exact words. I feel myself puffing up with all the radiation talk. It's hard on the nerves. It went over my head. I knew nothing but in the context of this research project. Oh my God, he was in the middle of it." So these are the things that, that kind of you got to work this stuff in somehow. I worked as a miner. I'm sort of a laborer, underground laborer myself getting through a university. And then it was in a Newfoundland mine. And uh, a lot of the fellows that I ran into there, they were from St. Lawrence. They had got their mining experience there. They were going around different places. And so I had, I had a personal exposure to my own experience and to listening to my parents talk about all our lives. And the fact that, uh, I, I really cared about the place. And at the same time, I had no right to impose my person on the story because, wow, you know, my father died like the rest of them. But that wasn't the only place. He worked in a lot of ugly workplaces. See, my father had never gone to school. Never in his life had he been inside of a school except to go to a social function. And there's a complicated bunch of reasons for that. But he was literate. He was articulate. He spoke Gaelic fluently and English fluently. He worked with engineers and geologists all his career. So the guy wasn't stupid, but, and, and he could read and write very well. So, I mean, there was a, there was a whole set of circumstances that, that put him in there and that I felt had to be a part of the story. But I wanted to segregate that personal stuff away from the more, you know, the big universal story of what this place and, and, and these people went through.
1: And as you say, you spent some time mining as well. And your father made it very clear he did not want a miner's life for you.
0: The only time he ever put his foot down, and he probably should have put it down a lot more frequently. But the only time I was, I remember, it was my 19th birthday. And it was in the summertime. And I had worked an overnight shift. I literally turned 19 underground. And uh, I was in, in the bunk the next morning, sort of getting over the night shift, and, and he was going out on a holiday that day. So he came in to say, happy birthday, into my room, and he, he gave me two packs of cigarettes for my birthday. And he asked me if I'd got my marks from university, and I said, yeah, I did. And he says, how'd you do? And I said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> not brilliant, but I passed. Oh, so you're going back then? And I said, yeah, not so sure, because, you know, I was kind of taken with this macho, rugged life, mm-hmm minor. You know, they come and they go, you get tired of this place, you tell the boss to go to hell and you go to the next place and you get tired of all of them and you go home and you spend your money for six months. So, I mean, like, this was a sort of an interesting a bit of life for me. So, I said, you yeah, know, maybe I'm going stick to stick it out here for a year or two and make enough money so that I don't have to worry about cash when I go back to university. He just looked at me and I remember he was smoking one of the, my birthday cigarettes and I can still see him putting it into the Coke bottle. He says, no, nope, you're going back. <laughs> you're just passing through here, he said. And I said, oh, we'll see about that. No, that's it. We've seen about that. And uh, and when he went out, it was interesting. He had an old buddy there, Black Angus McDonald. And he put Angus in charge of me. I, I, without telling me. So I was going to get fired. I was going to be deported. I was not going to
1: be. <laughs> the fix was already in.
0: But the next summer, I was back with him. We were up in another mine. The two of us together up in northern Quebec. So uh, it was. I could probably have worked around it, but by the end of that summer, I think I was pretty glad to get out of there.
1: And so, switching gears for a second and talking about your career, your time in universities—a good pivot point for that. You've been writing almost continually, it seems, you know, for decades as a as a journalist, and novelist, as a, an author of nonfiction. What roles did books and reading play for you when you were young?
0: Well, I'll, I'll give you an example that's not unrelated to what we've just been talking about. The summer I went to Newfoundland to work in the mines, uh, where my father was. Uh, I went into a bunk, a room in a bunkhouse, and it was not, there was a, two bunks in the room, I got one of them, and there was no furniture except it was a, a dynamite box, <laughs> a wooden dynamite crate, nailed to the wall, which is where you put your toiletries and stuff. And somebody who had previous argument had left two books in that box. One of them was, and I've I've never forgotten this. One of them was Klondike by Pierre Burton. And the other was Martin Eden by Jack London. Now, I had just finished uh, a hard year at university. I didn't bring any books. I didn't want to see a book of, of any kind. But after a week or two, I started to browse through these books. And they had an impact. I still... Think about the, the fact. Uh, Pierre Burton's book was about Klondike. It was about places, not unlike where I was. Yep. Pierre was a, a well-known Canadian writer, author.
1: It's a fantastic book,
0: and, and it was a, it was a fantastic book. I'm reading about stuff. Wow! I could you know after this summer, I'll be able to write this stuff. Sort of. But and and Pierre was a kind of an iconic. He was one of those Canadians who actually made money writing other than newspaper stuff. And Martin Eden was about a struggle to become a novelist. Uh, and and it was a hard hard struggle. It ended badly, and but I was so so taken with the struggle and with the with the motivation and the drive behind this young guy from nowhere who had really nothing going for him. He was in New York. He was an outsider. Uh, he is unsophisticated, uh, just striving, striving, striving to fit in and to get to write and the books And I said, wow, like this is just an amazing uh, experience. And I thought, okay, you know, that reading and writing is something that I've got to get more serious about. And I did.
1: And so you actually found a career that was as difficult as hard rock mining <laughs> as the result.
0: Uh, more so. I mean, more. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, you, you might live a little longer in it, but uh, so I went back to university and I, I was hell bent. And I remember I, I took a course in creative writing as part of the English program. And there was a renowned uh, priest who was a poet, published poet, uh, who was very, uh, very uh, esoteric and, uh, and, and extremely well-informed and rigorous. So he used to give his poetry writing si- assignments. And I remember him taking me aside once and he said, uh, don't even think about anything of writing creatively because uh, you just, you're, you're, you know, your stuff is sentimental and you never get over that. And I said, okay, that's cool. And I finished out. Uh, there were a couple of other priests, luckily for me, on there who thought that I, I had a great hand for writing essays and uh, stuff that, uh, factual stuff that required research and the rest of it. And one of them took me aside one day and said, did you ever think of journalism? Well, having just been damned to hell in the creative field, journalism, hey, actually, you get paid for journalism, where you don't always get paid for creative writing. And so then I started to sort of steer myself towards a journalistic path, which I eventually looked into and and never left.
1: You seem now to be able to move more or less seamlessly between journalism, fiction, and nonfiction. Does one feel like home and the other's more of a stretch? I
0: don't think so. I think that you put your finger on something when you were Talking about those creative chapters of conversations with the dead in the wake, I believe that, I mean, th- there is, I, I think that the best fiction is, is, not, is not untrue. The best fiction is, is, is truthful, and the best fiction is drawn from experience, and, uh, and I guess one of the reasons why it took me so long to get into writing fiction uh, in a serious way to aim for publication because I, it, it took me a long time to gather the experience that, the, that began to crystallize into sort of perception of human nature, perception of the world. Surprisingly, in, in the television aspect of journalism, I developed skills that people don't much expect to develop. In, in. But, but it's, now, now that you know, once I, I started to use them, it became obvious to me the uh, observation of character, the uh, observation of, of a setting, of a place. Dialogue, especially in radio and television, you you are listening to people all the time. You're listening carefully to understand what they're saying and to find out what it is in what they're saying that is worth passing on to other people. And ninety percent of what people say is like just scrape it off, and but ten to twenty five percent of what people say is really worth sharing and worth you know keeping alive. So in in television, I learned to listen. And when you're listening, you're also picking up the, the characteristics of, of expression, people's accents, people's voices, people's style. And then when you pick that up, you, you sort of see into their character fairly well. So all these things sort of combined over years of experience into it, an urge to try some of this stuff out, you know, to see if it, it works, see if I actually have the ability, now that I've left all the sentimentality behind me, and now that I've got some of this experience and some of this power of observation, can I use it? to make a story. And that's basically how it happened.
1: Your career in fiction started in 1999 with the first book in your Cape Breton trilogy, The Long Stretch.
0: That's my career in publication. The career years before that.
1: Yes. The second 10 years later, The Bishop's Man won the Giller Prize, and then there have been three more books since. Were there authors who you were looking to when you started building that momentum around fiction for yourself?
0: I grew up with the usual cast of authorial characters. You know, you, I would go on binges, Somerset Maugham binge, uh, Hemingway binge, uh, Updike binge. You know, you go on these binges over over years. And eventually, though, it was when I, I went on a couple of Irish binges that I started to hear a voice that I thought was familiar to me. And and it was a voice that that maybe was uh, kind of an echo of, of a voice that was going on inside of me. So... I suppose the you know the uh, Brian Moore. We I discovered him back in the in the sixth late sixties, early seventies when uh, we were starting to consider that like he was a journalist. He had worked at Montreal Gazette as a reporter, and then he branched off. He was an Irishman, but he he made a he made a fantastic career at fiction writing, and he was very good at it. and I loved his books, and uh, and eventually you know that you get into that that realm, and Laddie Doyle comes along, and he writes tremendous stuff, he has great success. And then I discovered an Irish writer named John McGahern, who is not a household name everywhere except where people appreciate strong literature. And and he had a series of, of books, he didn't write a huge number of books, but they were just so, they stuck so cool. Close to the bone of human nature, human experience, the ambiguities and ironies of, of life in small places—that he just captured my soul in many ways. Uh, I would never, uh, you know, I would never even aspire to imitate or, or duplicate his abilities. But but it was just a kind of a guiding light out there. That this—you you can write from the point of view of a, re, of a region, you can write from the point of view of a province, you can write from the point of view of a small community. And people, ordinary people that are going nowhere, coming from nowhere, just living their daily lives. And in those daily lives, you find the experience that in a, in a, in a, in a, in a different context suddenly gives meaning to everybody's experience. And and this is what he showed me. And this is what I, I realized. This, this is the sort of the holy grail of uh, literature is to get into individual human experience at a very basic level and then translate it into mm-hmm. the, the, the wider experience of of, humanity. It all sounds a whole lot higher and mighty than I ever really thought through, but (laughs) if you want me to look back on it, I, I can see a certain drive in that direction.
1: You've spent a career on deadline, pushing to get stories crafted, information out in a timely manner. Why is it important for you to go back in time to recover stories and events like what happened in St. Lawrence, that have kind of been buried in time?
0: Well, I think all all these stories, these are not, I mean, history, I suppose, I shouldn't say they're not, they are history, but history in itself is is a motherload of direction. It's a motherload of of insight. And I think that uh, history is often sold short, especially community history, regional history, rural history. I mean, the history of great wars and and great governments have been well told. Are certainly widely told, but it's, it's in the history of the ordinary human being that you find the great messages, uh, the great sort of insights into universal human nature. So I'm not ashamed to go to a small place in the middle of nowhere and get to know their experience. And they're not all as huge and dramatic as the experience of St. Lawrence, Newfoundland. You can go to smaller places with more modest histories and find the same kind of inspiration. But I believe that's where I, that's where I prefer to look for the stories I want to tell, and for the characters who will populate the stories and who will basically drive the stories. Those are the places that interest me most.
1: Lyndon McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for patiently listening. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of stuff, but it was a pleasure.
1: I have been speaking with Lyndon McIntyre. His latest book is The Wake, The Deadly Legacy of a Newfoundland Tsunami. It and the other books we've talked about here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at Kobo.com conversation. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or however you listen. And leave us a review, because it helps other readers to find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin, today from Sandy Cove, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thank you for listening.